Am I on? Everything good? I feel like I'm just talking to myself in this in this little office sometimes. It's uh, it's still kind of weird. Um, and I just want to point out that after several uh, decades of trying to come up with a with an actual hobby and to become a fully orbed human being, I have um, I'm I'm now making candles and it's a successful hobby. I've made I've made more than three. So I think it's going to take. Um, so I'm extremely pleased with myself in case you didn't notice. So our reading today by Hope Schaefer is from a writer who lost hope in a central tenet of his tradition, uh, the hope of a glorious future. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a sly, subversive writing in the middle portion of the Hebrew Bible called the writings. So this is my Robert Alter translation of the Hebrew Bible. The middle section is the writings section, and that's where the book of Ecclesiastes is found. Um, this middle portion of the Hebrew Bible called the writings or the uh, wisdom literature uh, includes some really interesting books that um, in, that include internal critique of conventional Jewish wisdom, meaning scriptural, biblical wisdom, we might say. The book of Job is a critique of the idea that God rewards the righteous and punishes the unrighteous. The book right next door to Job is Proverbs, and that's the one that asserts that uh, over and over that God rewards the righteous and punishes the unrighteous. Job says, uh-uh, that's not my experience. Um, the Song of Songs, which is also in this middle portion of the Hebrew Bible, is an erotic love poem featuring two young unmarried lovers where the dominant voice belongs to the woman. And this would be certainly an affront to the ancient patriarchy that tried especially to control female sexuality. But there it is in the Bible. So there is freedom within this tradition to question, to challenge, to doubt, to disagree, with even deeply entrenched theological perspectives. And this freedom is part of the tradition. It's not, it's not against the tradition, it's part of the tradition. And that continues in the, new, uh, the Newer Testament. So the book of Ecclesiastes gives voice to someone in profound religious disillusionment. The anonymous author can't bring themselves to even mention Israel's glorious past, the exodus from Egypt, the reign of King David. As the Mexican theologian Elsa Tamez says, Ecclesiastes is for when our horizons close. You can't see a future worth hoping for. And remember, hope for a glorious future was at the heart of Israel's faith. It's at the heart of Christian faith. Even the most Pessimistic prophets like Jeremiah saw a glorious future ahead. Not this writer. This writer is part of a nation on its third round of oppression, spanning centuries now. First, it was the exile in Babylon. Then the Persian Empire uh, comes down. Now they are overrun by Greeks who will profane their rebuilt temple in time. I mean, it's too much. To make matters worse, the writer seems to have had um, recent bad luck in their, in, in their love life, which casts a shadow over everything and will put most of us into an existential funk. But it's an existential funk expressed as religious 
disillusionment. What does it mean to be Jewish when your Jewish view of the world seems like a fairy tale? This is the emotional undertone of this book. So when our future, our, or say our picture of the future is uh, bleak, say for political reasons, as is the case with Ecclesiastes. And that uncertain, forlorn future turns your faith upside down, something that provides a lot of meaning in your life. And then you add some very personal challenge, like bad luck in the love life department. You're in the kind of space where Ecclesiastes may speak to you. Maybe you're not there now with the writer, but chances are you will visit this place sometime. Now, many of us feel this, I, I don't know a time when people, so many people have felt this same sense so intensely than right now. Our sense of the future, whether democracy can rebound in the face of this recent assault, the, the future of our daily lives overshadowed by COVID, all this is intensified by a religious identity crisis owing to the complicity of so much, especially white Christianity, with horrors like Christian nationalism, to mention one. If we have um, like white family members caught up, say in conspiracy theories and the rest, chances are they identify as Christians, Catholic, evangelical, I mean, the major sectors of the landscape that have essentially abandoned their founder, the God of the oppressed, when it really counts. So even congregations in the so-called liberal or progressive denominations tiptoe often around toxic beliefs like Christian nationalism at the local congregational level. I don't mean they espouse it at the congregational level, but there's a real reluctance to like call it out and say, this is dangerous, this is toxic. So we're left hoping these forms of so-called Christianity shrink until they can reform enough to be worth saving. You, you, can, see, you can see this vexes me. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is important in a time like this, and uh, I recommend the Robert Alter translation. Um, actually, one of the reasons I, I use this as my Bible is it doesn't remind me of Bibles from my conservative religious days, which is kind of like triggering for me, you know. So I, I have this out where I can see it, and it reminds me, oh, wait a minute, that's, you know, Faith isn't defined by things I'm frustrated with. Okay. Um, but the other thing you get from the Robert Alter translation is the realization that this book is written by an anonymous writer around the middle of the third century before the common era. Um, the writer of Ecclesiastes creates a narrator and gives the narrator a name the older translations in English name this figure Ecclesiastes. So it's like the name of the author, the way it's presented. And that word Ecclesiastes is from the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, which was actually a common, commonly in use even in Israel because uh, the Greek uh, language was so, um, so, so well used at that time. And, and a lot of people actually didn't read Hebrew. They read Greek, even, even Jewish people. But the Hebrew name for the narrator is um, Kohilet, 
Ohelet, that's spelled Q-O-H-E-L-E-T, and it's pronounced Kohelet, is the name of the narrator of the book that we call Ecclesiastes. Now, the unusual thing about this Hebrew name, Kohelet, is that it has a, a feminine ending to it, E-T. The masculine form is Kohelel, but this is the feminine form, Kohelet. So, what does that mean? Nobody really knows. I mean, uh, was it written or influenced by a woman undercover? Um, you know, the wisdom literature in this middle portion of the Bible is the part of the Hebrew Bible that highlights the feminine aspect of the divine. Sophia is in the Greek, whereas the divine name Yahweh is, is masculine. So in a patriarchal culture, is it the feminine voice that becomes the challenging, subversive voice? Well, uh, um, maybe that's going on. We don't know. It's lost in the mists of time. Even so, the details of Ohelet or Ecclesiastes are less important, I think, um, at least for the purposes of what I'm sharing today, uh, than its existence in our sacred writings. That the fact that it's there. What what does its placement here in holy text signify? Um, Contrary to the dominant and corrupt expressions of faith that give God a bad name today, the presence of writings like Job, like Song of Songs, like Ecclesiastes tells us a couple things. One, we're part of a faith tradition that makes room for subversive voices, questioning voices, and isn't afraid of critique from within the tradition, critique of the tradition from within the tradition as part of the tradition. There, there are many examples of this, not least of which Jesus, who, like other Hebrew prophets, offered critique from within of even sacred co uh, concepts within his tradition, like, like sacrifice. One of the refrains of the Sermon on the Mount is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This wasn't a departure from his Jewishness, but this was just an expression of it. Second thing, we're also part of a faith tradition that makes room for disillusionment. Um, disillusionment is not opposed to faith. It's part of the faith journey. Um, there's an ancient tradition that kind of uh, precedes psychology. It was called a uh, spiritual direction, like spiritual conversation with someone. And uh, actually Susan King and Sue Brokaw in our church have been trained in, in the art of spiritual direction, this old ancient um, ancient methodology or discipline. And in, in the, that training, um, disillusionment is, no one's nervous or anxious about it because it's understood to be part of the faith journey. So if you're going to talk to a spiritual director and you say, I'm disillusioned, they're like, oh boy, this is great. <laughs> Again, Jesus himself uttered words of profound disillusionment at the time of his death. When holy people are supposed to say, like my grandmother just before she died, oh, look, the angels. Jesus' last words in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, uh, are not so uplifting. They're, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of my most like treasured experiences of the divine were preceded by a time of disillusionment. Um, sometimes the old wells have to dry up before we dig new ones. Disillusionment can purify faith. It can signal the birth of, um, it can signify like the birth of something new 
in our understanding or experience of God, but it doesn't feel like it at the time. So today I want to offer a meditative practice to center us in maybe any difficult time, but including especially periods of disillusionment. Um, it'll take me a few minutes to unpack this and then we'll get to the meditation. So Rachel Johnson, that's um, Rachel and Joseph are new members having moved recently from Chicago. So they could have been members of Blue Ocean without moving from Chicago. Um, uh, Rachel's going to help with this. After a minute of uh, guided meditation, Rachel will play a Leonard Cohen song, um, Hallelujah, um, on the piano, but just humming the verses, uh, but singing the chorus. A word about this song, Leonard Cohen song. Cohen wrote Hallelujah in 1984, but it actually wasn't popular for many years. It, it finally gained traction when it was used in the movie Shrek in 2001. I know we have some Shrek fans in the church here. Um, so that's when it sort of hit the popular, um, you know, level. And then uh, Cohen died. Uh, Leonard Cohen, the um, songwriter, died on November 7th, 2016, the day before a very distressing election here in the United States. And this song took off again. Um, Cassie introduced it, I think, a few years ago uh, on Christmas Eve um, and did a mashup of, of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah with Oh Holy Night. I think that was what it was combined with. Um, the, the melody of this song has been described as melancholic, fragile, uplifting, even joyous, all at the same time. And that's that captures it for me. It's melancholic fragile, it's uplifting in a strange way, even um, joyous, but the joy is like an undertone of the of the song, not an overtone. I, I read when Cohen uh, wrote part of this song uh, in a New York hotel room, he was literally banging his head on the floor. So this song like Ecclesiastic, Ecclesiastes uh, comes out of a time of anguish. So, I'm, I'm going to um, suggest that we combine listening to the song with letting our focus rest on a person whose way of doing faith, of doing a God-aware life, it actually moves us or inspires us. I think I've, I've mentioned my mentor, pastor back in Detroit, um, Toledo and West Grand Boulevard for you Detroiters, uh, Jalen Rose's neighborhood, for you basketball fans. Um, this is the man, um, Dick Bieber, who helped my dad recover from a very major depressive episode in 1972. So in, in all the ups and downs of my faith journey, uh, he was in the background, like inside my head as a kind of plumb line for what's real or what can be in terms of my own, uh, I'd say religious identity. Then, um, not so long ago, I kind of lost touch with uh, Dick Bieber. Um, not so long ago, uh, while he's in his 90s, he wrote me the sweetest email to say that he deeply regrets holding the traditional view on LGBTQ. He now sees he was wrong, and he, like, thanked me. I was like, oh, my God, I have my hero back. This was this one of the best things. 
then then he had his wife Jean read the book that Emily and I wrote that uh, Steve held up, Solus Jesus. Um, he has macular degeneration, so his elderly wife reads the book to him, and he sent me another email commending what we had done. Plus, he sends out devotional emails to probably hundreds of people that he served as a pastor, people who people are big Dick Bieber fans. Um, and he's calling out Christian nationalism and all this stuff that's going on in, in his emails. So I love this man. And he's Canadian, which for some reason also helps. Um, but there are quieter versions of faith. Um, I mentioned my father-in-law, Charles Hutter. Uh, he was raised in a fundamentalist home, not, not a toxic one, a very warm, loving home. But his parents prayed daily for some of his kids, um, grandkids, when they were studying science in college, that they would learn enough to get an A and then promptly forget what they had learned. So uh, Charles became an English professor specializing in Milton, and um, he was like a C.S. Lewis scholar. He interviewed C.S. Lewis on two occasions. Um, he spent an hour in J.R.R. Tolkien's private study while talking, Tolkien went on out for an appointment. <laughs> that would be pretty cool for an English professor. As a young man, he transitioned to a progressive form of Christianity, which I'm sure troubled his parents. Then at the age of 88, when I'm trying to convince him not to go grocery shopping in person during COVID, he up and goes to a Black Lives Matter rally in Holland, Michigan, on the western side of the state, not far from buildings named after the DeVos family. Like, go Charles. And, and there are many at this surface today I could easily include among those whose way of doing faith actually inspires me. When some image of a Christian nationalist mob, some bozo insurrectionist forms a prayer circle in the Senate chamber, praying to a God I do not know and do not wish to know, I cleanse my thoughts, this invasion of my sacred space with thoughts of people from this church. So I, I'm, I'm taking a Zoom class on Jewish mourning practices, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Um, we're using a book called Mourning and Mitzvah. And it's led by Annie Rose, the retired cantor at Temple Beth Emmet. Cantor would be like the worship director, I guess. And Annie led us in a meditation in this uh, Zoom class on a beloved ancestor. For some reason, my father's mother, Gladys Winifred, came to mind. Um, I often stayed for a week at her house when I was growing up. Um, and Annie had us remember our loved one in the setting we knew them in. So I called to mind my visits there on Calvin Street and getting as much double mint gum as I wanted, no restrictions. Um, I'd go with my grandma to church, of course, just down the block, but she would make it worth my while with a trip to the dime store the next day. Um, and it, it occurred to me in this meditation when I'm just resting my awareness on my, my grandma, um, uh, people used to say that she was nervous and anxious a lot. She had a, a pretty hard life actually, but I never felt that around her. I just felt love, I felt warmth. I remember like the blue light of the black and white TV in her living room animating her face at night as she got all excited about a Red Wings game. She was 
you know, Canadian, born in Canada. She loved hockey. And, and I realized in the meditation, um, even when, when I feel anxious, I can still love people so they experience these kinds of things from me. And that's like an ancestor strength in me. So you can rest your awareness on someone um, related to them or not, it doesn't matter, who has channeled a loving God's love to you during our meditation. This can be a spiritual practice. We're surrounded, as scripture says, by a cloud of witnesses who are with us, who are cheering us on in our leg of the race. And disillusionment is part of that race. So if you'd like to do this uh, meditation now, we're finally going get, to get around to doing it. Uh, just get comfortable in your chair. Um, maybe place your feet squarely on the floor and begin by just noticing the weight of the body pressing down on the chair. Notice how your body feels by standing down, starting with the head. Just notice any areas of tension, places that are warm or tingling, change anything, but just to be aware of how the body is right now, face, the ears, and the jaw, the back of the head, standing down the neck and throat, the shoulders, the upper arms, the chest, lower arms, the midsection, lower back, upper legs, lower legs, ankles, and feet. Now shift your awareness to your breathing. Just feel the air enter your lungs and belly, and then notice the body softening as you breathe out. And just retain that focus for a few breaths now. And now that we're centered a little bit, um, is there someone in your life, your past or your present, who has been a channel of divine love, compassion, kindness, acceptance? Even if they weren't like overtly religious, but looking back, you see, I, I, I saw something of God in them, I experienced something of love from them. Just let your focus rest on the memory of that person. Maybe where you would interact with them. Notice the surroundings in your memory. It's not important that you have a vivid memory. Just especially notice the good feeling you have had around that person. And now if you'd like, continue to remember them as Rachel offers Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah as a prayer. <laughs> 